Church, it's good to be with you on the Lord's Day in the house of the Lord. And in our time together, we are going to continue with our series, Revealing Jesus. As I've stated before, this is a series where we are studying the incredible futuristic book of Revelation. And even though it may seem like we're going to climb a mountain here as we delve into this somewhat challenging book of the Bible, we are going to go where not many others are willing to go. Because we want to be a church that is ready and prepared for our Savior's return, a church that is active in its mission to fulfill the Great Commission. In the message last week, we started to reveal Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, and we covered the first seven verses. And in the first seven verses alone, we started to unpack some of the amazing mysteries and truths about our Lord and Savior and His second coming. We spoke of how the book of Revelation is very symbolic in nature and that things like numbers, signs, colors, analogies, hyperboles and figures of speech found in this book are all symbolic of literal things that will happen in the future. We touched on the fact that when these end time events start to take place, they will be like a stack of dominoes that are all lined up in perfect sequence and when one is tripped, they will all fall in rapid succession. We also found that the book of Revelation is a book of blessing. There are seven blessings throughout the book and we will be blessed if we read it, if we hear it, and if we do what it says. We touch very briefly on the sovereignty of God and the finished work of the cross and that because of Jesus' example of dying, rising again and being glorified in his new body and never to die again. We can look forward to the fact that we also in Christ will get a glorified body one day that will rise from the dead, a body that will never perish. We also learned about how the Lord has loved us and washed us from our sins by His own blood. And because of this finished work, it says He has made us kings and priests or a kingdom of priests to His God and Father. Church, when God redeems us through the blood of His Son Jesus, We take on the mantle of royalty, so to speak. And taking on that mantle means that we share in all the privileges and responsibilities of being heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We are in the position of a priest, not in a clerical sense, but in the sense of God using us to present Him and represent Him to man and for us to intercede in representing man to God. And finally, we read that Jesus will return with clouds, which represent the saints. And when he returns, it says in verse 7, that every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Church, I was reflecting on how we concluded last week with this verse and the weight of this verse. And how many of you were moved to stand in the gap for those whom this verse may be representative of one day when they see Jesus face to face. That was a significant moment. And I believe the Lord has heard the cry of your hearts. And as I was reflecting on this and as I was preparing for this week's message, at some point I felt the Lord impressing on my heart that Ryan, your job as the shepherd is to prepare the flock as if Jesus was returning today. 
I wasn't quite sure what that meant because when I sensed that, I initially thought, but Lord, you know, as we're studying the book of Revelation, we are learning that there are certain things according to end time events that still have to happen before you return. So Lord, what does that mean? But as I inquired of the Lord, I felt the Lord leading me to ask myself the question and to ask you the question today, are you living as a Christian that is ready to meet Jesus face to face if he should return during this service or later on today? It reminds me of a story I heard about a tourist who was in northern Italy and he was wandering around looking at all the the beautiful new sites that he had never seen before. And he came across a beautiful castle that was set on a hill called the Villa Asconati. He was a very inquisitive person, so he, he pushed the gate open and went inside. And everything was breathtakingly beautiful. There was a gardener there who was clipping every blade of grass. The flowers were blooming, the shrubbery was just perfectly shaped, and everything was luxuriously green. And the man said, May I come in and look at the gardens? The gardener said, Come right in. You're very welcome. I'm glad to have a guest. So the man looked around and he said, This place is absolutely stunning. Who owns this place? The gardener mentioned the name of the owner and that he was a very wealthy businessman. The man said, Does he live here now? I'd love to meet him. He said, Oh no, he's away. He doesn't come here very often. Oh, he said, when's the last time you've seen him? He said, 12 years ago. 12 years? You mean to tell me that this place has been standing empty for 12 years and it looks so magnificent? He said, yes. The tourist asked him, well, who tells you what to do? He said, well, he has an agent in Milan and he he just sends instructions. All the while, the gardener is still clipping and pruning and trimming while he's having this discussion. And the man finally asks him, why have you got everything so beautiful? I mean, he hasn't been here for 12 years. Why is everything so perfect? It looks like you are expecting him tomorrow, to which the gardener replied, today, sir, today. I expect him to come at any time. And you see, church, That's the way we ought to be living. Not as though Jesus Christ were coming sometime in the future, but as if He were coming today. We ought to be living as though He died yesterday, rose this morning, and He's coming back this afternoon. Amen? And even though we are going to be talking about future events right throughout the series, let us use whatever we learn as we reveal Jesus as preparation to be effective Christians now so that we fulfill our calling as a kingdom of priests and that we are prepared like the wise virgins who were ready to meet their bridegroom. Even though the book of Revelation is a futuristic book, we cannot be futuristic Christians who only plan to be effective and fulfill their calling in the future. Can I get an amen to that? So having laid that as a platform for today's message, Let us go to the scriptures and let's begin here in chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus begins to speak here and he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come. 
the Almighty. Now, the New Testament, as most of you would know, was written originally in Greek. So that's the first Greek letter of the alphabet and the last Greek letter of the alphabet, the Alpha and the Omega. If he was speaking to us today in English, he would say, I am the A and the Z. And church, that means that Jesus Christ is the first, the last, and all the letters in between. In other words, he is the accumulated wisdom of Almighty God, which means he is the omniscient one. And you know what that signifies for you and me? It means you'll never need anything more than Jesus. Don't ever get the idea of, well, I'm saved now. I've got Jesus. Now I'm going on to something else. I'm going to broaden my horizons. No, you don't go on from Jesus. You go deeper. Because you can go deeper into Jesus. You can have more of Jesus. But you will never go beyond Jesus. Right? Jesus is all you need. He's omniscient, but he's also omnipresent because it says here that he is the beginning and the end. He is the one who brought everything into existence, and he's the one who's going to bring it into consummation. He is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. He is the omnipresent one. Right? So he's the omniscient one and the omnipresent one, but he's also the omnipotent one. Because it says there at the end of verse 8 that He is the Almighty. And church, what does that mean? It means that Jesus is God. He's not just a teacher. And we don't just tip the hat to Jesus. We bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, some people refer to Jesus as a great teacher or a great philosopher or a prophet. Some even refer to Him as one of the greatest men that ever lived. If you go into Google and, and search for the top 10 greatest men that ever lived, they compare Jesus with, with Gandhi, with Nelson Mandela, with Muhammad, Buddha, Isaac Newton, and Albert Einstein. But here's the thing. If you don't see Jesus as God himself, then you've missed all of Christianity. Jesus is Almighty God. He's the omniscient one, the omnipresent one, and he's also the omnipotent one. And what's interesting as we go through the book of Revelation is that we see Jesus and his second coming described very differently to his first coming. Let me give you a couple of examples. When he came the first time, he came to take the sinner's place to pay the debt of sin. But when he comes again, he's coming to execute judgment upon the unsaved sinner. He's coming to take vengeance on those who know not God and who obey not the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He came the first time as the lamb, but he's coming the second time as the lion. He came the first time as a baby in a manger, but he's coming back as a righteous judge in incredible power and glory. The first time he wore a robe of shame and a crown of thorns. They put a sign on him that said, The King of the Jews as they mocked him, beat him, and spat on him. But let me tell you something. He's coming back to sit upon the throne of his glory and be revealed as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen? Verse 9 goes on to say, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, 
was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, when John says tribulation there, that's tribulation with a small t, right? There's plenty of tribulation, small t, in all of our lives to different degrees. But there's a great tribulation with a capital T that comes in Revelation chapter 6 that will come upon the earth. And church, if you think that things are bad now, you haven't seen anything yet. What is going to happen on, on the earth is unimaginable. But God outlines it for us in advance through chapter 6 to 18. So when John says here, I'm your brother and companion in tribulation, he doesn't mean I'm in the great tribulation. But you see, you have to understand that he's writing in 1st century AD and it was one of the bloodiest centuries in terms of persecution of Christians. And so he's experiencing tribulation himself as he's on the island of Patmos. I mean, remember, he's in his 90s here and he's chipping and hauling rocks around. I don't know if you know this, but the island of Patmos was a big slab of marble and when prisoners were sent there, they would chip out marble and move it around. Now, this is not a good way to spend your retirement. But he says here, the reason I'm on the island of Patmos is because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, I'm here on this island, this terrible place of torment, because I've been true to the word of God and I've been true to the testimony of Jesus Christ. As a believer, this is why I'm here. And he says, I am your brother and companion in tribulation, which means he understood that he wasn't the only Christian to be suffering persecution at the time. And it's also a reminder to us that to be a Christian today that is true to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, we will at some point in our lives suffer persecution. You see, whether you're witnessing to a family member or to a friend, or to an atheist, or you preaching from the pulpit of a church, or on the street corners. Not everybody is going to agree with what you say. In fact, they might even hate you. You know, the world we're living in now is as close as it has ever been to the paganistic society of first century AD. The goal of paganism is to control and dominate a culture, and Christianity is the most severe threat that it faces to accomplishing that goal and that control. Right? That's why they hate Christians so much. This is nothing personal. And that is why it is so important, church, that we don't ever compromise on the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. John then says here in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me, a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now again, he's using language here that is symbolic but has literal meaning. It sounded like the blast of the voice was so strong that it was like a mighty trumpet blast. But it doesn't literally mean a trumpet. He's talking about how the voice of the Lord sounded so strong like a trumpet blast. And he says, I was in the Spirit. Now, in your Bibles, in the original Greek transcript of the Bible, the word the is not in the original Greek. The original Greek just simply reads, I was in spirit. Not I was in the spirit, but I was in spirit. 
And the only reason I point that out is because John is saying more than I have the Holy Spirit in me or more than the Holy Spirit was guiding me to write these things. What he's telling us is that he was actually taken captive by the Spirit and lifted in spirit in something like an out-of-body experience. And I don't want this to sound mystical or mysterious or even new age. But this is more than John just being inspired to write these things by the Spirit. He is saying I was caught up in spirit in that God actually took him to some place visually, spiritually, to be able to experience these things, to see these things. And that's what he writes about. And church, let me just say this, just as a word of caution. There are many ways into the supernatural. But there's only one of them that leads into God's supernatural, and that's Jesus. John also mentions in this verse that it was on the Lord's day. And just to be clear, church, that doesn't mean the Sabbath. The Sabbath has been and always will be Saturday, right? He's talking about Sunday here. Ever since Jesus rose from the dead on the Sunday, that's been the Lord's day. That's been traditionally when the Christian church has been worshiping him on the Sunday, right? This is the day that the Lord has made. So he's specific about the day here, and he says, I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. And then in verse 11, Jesus again speaks and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. Right? Remember, Asia is Asia Minor, which today is known as Turkey. And he says, write these letters and send them to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Now, church, I'm going to pause there for a moment because John begins to describe the Son of Man here. He hears this loud voice behind him. He turns around and he's going to behold this incredible vision of Jesus. But before he describes Jesus, he talks about how he sees seven golden lampstands. Now, these golden lampstands are what is traditionally called in the Hebrew a menorah. And on the screens, you will see a picture of one as a seven-branched candelabra. Traditionally, in ancient times, the menorah was the only source of light in the temple. And John sees seven of them. Now, if you jump ahead to verse 20, it shows you exactly what the seven lampstands represent. It says there, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, which I'll explain at some point a bit later. And the seven lampstands, which we're speaking specifically about here, right, which you saw are the seven churches. So he literally sees these seven menorahs and they're going to represent what we get into in chapters two and three. Seven different churches that Jesus is going to dictate a letter to. And these seven churches are represented each by a menorah. Now, that is significant because 
But what did Jesus say about us? Jesus not only said that he was the light of the world, he turns to us and when he hands the mantle of ministry to us, in that the church should continue to express Jesus and demonstrate Jesus, he says, you are the light of the world. In other parts of scripture, he says, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father which is in heaven. There's a reason why the menorah is symbolic of the church in this passage here. Because we are to be the light in the midst of darkness. And let me ask you a, a very obvious question. Have you noticed how dark our world is and how darker it's becoming every day? And what is the answer to, to where we find ourselves? Right? What is the solution to the darkness? Does it help to get frustrated by this fact? Does it help to get angry? No. You don't scream at the darkness. You turn on the light. And the light that we are to illuminate is, of course, Jesus. The church is to be the light set on a hill that we might let the light of the Lord shine and we might reflect Jesus in our culture and in our world. Right? So this is what it means by the, the seven golden lampstands. Let's continue in verse 13. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Now remember I said earlier that when Jesus first came to the earth, he was clothed with a garment of shame. They mocked him, beat him, and spat on him. But it says here in verse 13, he's clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. And what this signifies, church, is a robe of a king and a judge. In other words, the lamb has become the lion. And he will be dressed in royal garments one day when every eye will see him and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will be dressed in his robes of royalty and he will rule and reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Hallelujah! Verse 14 says, His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. And do you know what this speaks about, church? Where are our, our biblical scholars this morning? What does the color white speak of? It speaks about his purity. All throughout the book of Revelation, the color white speaks of purity and sinlessness. Even as it says in, in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, where it says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. Church, Jesus is faultless, sinless, and absolutely pure. He is holy. And this is critically important for two reasons. Firstly, because if he wasn't a sinless and absolutely pure Savior and judge, he wouldn't be able to forgive us of our sins when we commit our lives to him, right? And secondly, because he is faultless, sinless, and absolutely pure, he cannot overlook unrepented and unreconciled sin. If a judge allows sin to go unpunished, crime to go unpunished, the judge himself becomes guilty. 
And you know, some people in life may say, well, you know, I'm just going to go up to heaven one day and plead for mercy. If I somehow missed the mark and, and didn't do what I was supposed to do on this earth while I was alive, I'll just go up to heaven and ask for forgiveness. Does it work like that, church? No. It is appointed for man to die once and after this the judgment. If you think you can get to heaven without being saved, without being born again, you are grossly ignorant of two things. Number one, you don't know how holy God is. And number two, you don't know how sinful you are. Jesus is eternally pure, so be sure. It also says there in verse 14 that he has eyes as a flame of fire. And church, what that means very simply is that he sees everything in you and me. He sees through us. He knows everything. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He sees all and he knows all. Your entire life, my entire life, is laid bare before the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that? He knows things that no one else knows about you. He knows your every thought. He knows the money that you stole from your, your dad's wallet 30 years ago. He knows how you cheated on that exam. He knows that secret that you are keeping from your husband or your wife. And he knows what you were looking at on your phone last night. You may be sitting in the service today thinking that no one knows what's going on secretly in my life. But one day you're going to stand before the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire. And there's nothing he won't know about you. Verse 14 ties in with verse 15 where it says, His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. And you see, church, both Jesus' eyes of fire and feet like brass are symbols of judgment. Because in the Old Testament, there was a brass altar in the courtyard of the tabernacle and later the temple. A fire was built there and sacrifices were consumed there. That's where sin was judged. That's where sin was dealt with. So these are, are symbols of judgment. And when it says there, his voice as the sound of many waters, that again means the power of his voice. And get this picture. The power of his voice roaring aloud and bearing down like a mighty river on all before him. And as John Wesley wrote about this specific verse, a sound which will bring comfort to his friends, but a sound that will bring terror to his enemies. As the voice of many waters. And this morning, as, as I close, I want to encourage you to take a moment or two and consider this with me. If you were alone with Jesus, let's say for instance, you were alone with him in a room and he looked at you with those eyes as of a fire. He had feet of brass and a voice raging like a mighty river. What are the hidden things in your life that he would expose? And I say that to you, church, not to condemn you. I say that because if we are to be Christians that live as if Jesus were coming back today, 
Are there certain things that need to be sacrificed on the altar so that we can be effective Christians now, not sometime in the future? What do we need to bring out from the darkness into the light? What do we need to reveal in order for for Jesus to heal? I don't know about you, but I would rather expose those things now and deal with them now than stand before Him one day and have to give an account as to why those things prevented me from doing what I was called to do. And I don't know what that may be for you. It may be an addiction to pornography or a drug. It may be something you've done in secret. But because you haven't exposed it and brought it out into the light, the demon of guilt and torment is playing havoc with your mind. It may be something that has been done to you personally that that has destroyed your self-worth and you are just a shadow of the person you used to be. Whatever it is, bring it to the altar. Repent if you need to repent and allow the Lord to consume that which is not of Him and His future for your life and allow Him to heal that very area of your life. Church, let me just say something. If you feel captive in your life in any way, You need to know that it is not of God because Jesus came to set the captives free. If that is you this morning, and whether you're here in person or you're listening online, bring these things to the altar. Bring it out from the darkness into the light and allow the Lord Jesus Christ to bring healing into that very area of your life.